and Hound podcast. Hello and welcome to the Horse and Hound podcast. I'm Gemma Redrup, digital features editor at Horse and Hound. I hope you're all well. It finally feels like we're into the thick of it with some wintry weather and I've been very much enjoying sitting down in front of the fire to watch some good racing on TV. However, after such a dry autumn, as we all know, water tables are still low and some great national hunt horses are still waiting for their first runs of the season as despite getting some rain, there's just still not enough cut in the ground for them, but hopefully that will change soon. Speaking of racing, our interview this week is with 13-time champion jumps trainer Paul Nichols, who, as we record this podcast, is operating at a whopping 33% strike rate and has already clocked over a million pounds in prize money since the current season began in April. Paul will be talking about his flying start to the season, his top horses, life at his yard at Ditchit, plans and aims for the rest of the season. Plus, he takes a look back at some of the all-time greats that he has trained, such as Corto Star, and the horses behind the turning point in his career. When the yard call with flagship Uberal is on the Tuesday, the champion chase on the Wednesday we call Equinate, and on the Thursday, Seymour Business won the Gold Cup. And that was the complete turning point in my career, really. If I hadn't been for those three horses, I probably wouldn't be here now. Then I'll be talking to our news desk about crucial decisions for the Paris Olympics, rules on blood and riding dangerously, and antibiotic use in horses. And finally, veterinary equine behaviourist Dr Gemma Pearson talks about training horses who buckle rear and the reasons they might display such behaviour. The first take-home message is pain. And if it's not pain, it's probably pain. And if it's not pain, it's probably pain. Almost all the horses I see with bucking and rearing have pain as a component. So there's lots to get through, so let's crack on with the podcast. Hi, I'm Jennifer Donald, racing editor at Horse and Hound. And with the national hunt season now in top gear, I am delighted to be joined this week by the 13-time champion jumps trainer, Paul Nichols, who during an incredible career spanning some 30 years has trained over 3,500 winners, including the Grand National, Cheltenham Gold Cup, King George, and just about every other big race in the calendar. Paul, hi, a very warm welcome, and thank you for joining us this week. No, not at all. Well, you've had an absolutely cracking start to this season. You seem to be firing out winners left, right and centre at the moment. What's the feeling down at Ditchit? Is there a real buzz about the place at the moment? Yeah, obviously, um, you know, everyone's very happy. They're all working hard and, um, you know, when the horses run well, look good, the results we're getting, it, it makes life a lot easier, I can assure you. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. And did you mean to come out all guns blazing or have you been a bit surprised by how well it's gone so early in the season? Well, we always aim to have the horses ready for the Chepstow meet in the middle of October. They've just been running consistently well ever since, really. Oh, fantastic. Can you pinpoint why they're sort of running out of their skins? I read somewhere that you changed their feed slightly. Is there anything, sort of one reason why they're doing so well at the moment? Uh, there's always lots of things, but we did change the feed this season. I think a bit of a change every every now and again. So we've gone on to Red Mills, Horse Care, Cubes, uh, 10 and 14, which we which seems to suit us really well. You, you need to get a balance of the feed that works for the amount of work you give the horses and obviously in with your hay. We seem to have that balance right at the moment. For some reason last year, I was never really happy with the horses and even in the spring, some of them were running fairly ordinary and the complete turnaround this autumn. Fantastic. It's amazing what it can do, just feeling good from the insides, I guess. it's um, Yeah, you can see it in them. And you've had some big winners already this season, the likes of Grenatine, Brave Man's Game and uh, of course the hugely popular Frodon. What are the big names we should be looking out for this season? You know, Grenatine, Fro, uh, they won the um, 
We'll start with him. He won the Holden Gold Cup the other day off the mark of 168. That's a prep run for him for the um, Tingle Creek, which he won last year. He's off there in the middle of next month. Frodon obviously won the Badrails Chase the other day. Mm -hmm. uh, Braidman's game won the um, Charlie Hall. Um, he's going to head off for the King George uh, Gold Cup on Boxing Day. Um, you know, they've been super horses just to start with. Yeah, definitely. Fantastic. Very exciting. Um, and any up and coming ones you're excited about? There's some smart novices kicking about, I see, as well. Yes, yeah, some really nice novice chases. Uh, we'll start off uh, with Jelena Bella, who won at Weatherby recently. Oh, yes. Grade one winner last year at Aintree. He's heading off to Newbury at the end of next week. Um, then Stage Star, he won very nicely at Warwick. He was, of course, a Chalo Hurdle winner last year, another grade one winner. So he's going to new read next week for two and a half mile, novice chase, graded race. And fabulous, he won uh, in Monday at Exeter, had a bit of a hiccup, he slipped at Ex uh, Wincanton that time before, won nicely on Monday, jumped really well. So that's three sort of smart novice chases to start with. Mm, fantastic. And are you allowed to have favourites or is that not allowed in your job? Yeah, yeah, you, you always do. I mean, obviously, everyone knows it when Corto was in training, he was one of my favourites. But... Mm -hmm. You know, like all the, you always like those really good classy horses. Um, one I'm particularly fond of, obviously, Brave Man's game because he, he he's quite a character and he's obviously quite good. Yeah, but you, you can't be, you know, you got to treat them all the same, really. They're they're all good horses. Um, you got just from us, we got to just give them the best of everything, make sure they're happy and healthy and you know fit to perform to their best. Yeah, fantastic. And how many horses do you have in training at the moment? Can you tell us a bit about the setup down at Ditchit? Yeah, well, we have 150 horses in two different yards, um, basically within a mile of each other. Um, and then we have several pre-training yards that have horses that come in, quar in quarantine or injured or might have, say, ringworm or a cough that you want to keep, keep out of the main string. And then we'll bid it as a, a sort of what we call a nursery yard um, in the next village to us where he has all the three-year-olds for me. So any three-year-olds I bought this summer, he would have them for the winter teach them their job, let them join in with us, school them ready for me to have next next July as four-year-olds. So I reckon there's probably in ditch it probably about 200 horses about with the ones in training, the ones in pre-training and, and the babies at Wills Academy. Wow, gosh, that's an impressive figure. Um, and it's, I mean, it's been a few years since I've been down, but the facilities there are fantastic. I remember the gradient of the gallops up the hill. It's just it's something it's to be seen to be believed. But uh, are you always looking to sort of find the winning edge? Are you always looking for sort of state-of-the-art gadgets, treadmills, that kind of thing? Or are you just meticulous in your preparations for racing? I think you've just got to keep it simple, to be honest with you. Uh, a big investment is we put a new monarch horsewalker in, eight walker, which just means we can double the number of horses that we can walk on top of the normal work. We've got four all-weather gallops, as you say, one hill gallop, um, one five-foot on flat gallop. They do fast work on a deep sand loop and an ordinary sand loop. So we've got plenty of places that we can take them, so keep them nice and fresh and try and, uh, as much as we like routine, we just make sure that they're doing different things all the time. Fantastic. Um, and obviously a great team of uh, people working around you. I saw Clifford Baker got an award re recently at the McCoys. It's, um, they're all crucial part of it as well, I guess. Yeah, that's a head lad here for 27 years. You got a Lifetime Achievement Award at Cheltenham, which is very good, well-deserved. But you're only as good as your team. You need a great team of people around you, from assistants, jockeys, staff, office staff, people riding out, blacksmith, physiotherapists. It's a big team and you need everyone part of that team to be successful. It's all about, I've always said it, Team Ditchett, having a great team. And jockeys-wise too, you've had some great partnerships over the years, but um, Harry Cobden seems to be doing a sterling job at the moment, doesn't he? As a young man, he's 
got better and better. He's only 24 years old. Um, doing lots of winners. He had a fantastic, I think, to start this week, he was on about 50% strike rate. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> you know, got Lorcan Williams and Brani Frost's backup, and Angles Chileda, Freddie Gordon, uh, Chris Gordon's son's joined us, Freddie Ginger. Um, he's with us now, Colin Tizard's grandson. Tom Buckley, he claims three. He rides, you know, all these lads are capable of riding winners and, you know, they work hard and get, you know, you know, hopefully they work hard, they get the success they deserve. Absolutely, yeah. They're doing well under your wing anyway, it seems to be so uh, fantastic. And just take us back then to how it all started. Are you from a horsey family? Did you start riding at a, at a young age? Uh, no, not really. Um, see, my, 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 my father was in the police force, my grandfather was in the police force, no connection with horses whatsoever. Wow. Dad gave me some riding lessons for a Christmas present when I was, I don't know, let's say I was five or six years old, seven years old. Went off for some riding lessons and got hooked on horses for some reason or another. And, <laughs> and my granddad, I know my granddad used to follow racing. He was great friends with Jeff Scudamore. And he often used to go and visit him on, on his daily beat. I think he'd stop off and see, see if Jeff was okay. And um, he um, used to follow the ITV7 on a Saturday and I used to watch out with him. I just got hooked on racing. Brilliant. Uh, great way to do it anyway. Um, and you had a great career as a jockey, first of all. What, what were your highlights sort of as your time in the saddle? I would hardly describe it as great. Uh, <laughs> my opportunities were restricted, really. But I, I did feel that I started off point-to-point. You know, I used to work for a guy called Dick Bainbridge. He's a very, very successful point-to-point trainer. I probably learned as much as from him as anybody. But I, I did realise that I, if I was going to train one day, I needed to get involved in the sport. So I rode as an amateur for a little bit. Then I rode a few winners as a professional. Actually, was lucky enough to win the Hennessy Gold Cup at Newbury twice, 86 on Broadheath and 87 on Play School. He then went on to win the Welsh Round National and the Irish Gold Cup. So I was very lucky to be in the right place at the right time and ride three or four very smart horses. Um, But I was really always hooked on the training, to be honest with you. Ah, okay. And then, so what was the sort of process in setting up on your own then? Did you, were you assistant trainer for a while and then take it that way? Yeah, well, I, I, I broke my leg. Um, I got kicked at home riding a horse, actually a good horse who won the Whitbread Gold Cup twice called Topsham Bay. I was riding him at home. He was a bit of a handball. Anyway, got, I got kicked by something else as he went past. Um, oh so I had a year off from riding. He was never going to ride again. Then I got too heavy. So I was assistant trainer to David and Jenny Barron. So I was working for a lot of fun with them. We won the Grand National in 91 with Seagram. Um, and I decided then I'd sort of done enough as assistant trainer to try and start on my own but obviously I didn't have any finance behind me and nowhere to go so I just kept reading the racing post every weekend and one one Saturday there was a in the classified average so it's the yard I'm in now it said 28 box yard in ditch it in Somerset for rent successful applicant will have the support of the landlord was Paul Barber no way right on the phone to him up here the next day and as you could say the rest is history I mean, that is fantastic. It's sort of fate has brought you there. And um, yeah. as you say, yeah, 30 years later, can you, I mean, this must be so impossible to look back, but over the 30 years, you've mentioned Corto Star, there's Denman, all these great horses. What have been the highlights? What are the moments that have made you most proud over the years? Um, well, it was amazing, really. I started off here with eight horses, I think, in 91, and then just gradually build up the winners, 10, 20, 30. was getting more and more frustrated because I hadn't really trained any big winners or Cheltenham winner. Mm-hmm. Um, in 1999, um, um, got lucky and having never had a Cheltenham winner within a week, trained three winners, won the Yarkle with flagship Uberalis on the Tuesday, the champion chase on the Wednesday with call Equinane, and on the Thursday, Seymour Business won the Gold Cup. <gasps> well, you can imagine that was just amazing 
thing for us. And that was the complete turning point in my career, really. If I hadn't been for those three horses, I probably wouldn't be here now. Oh, wow. uh, so that was an amazing, amazing day. Amazing week. And yeah, really was a springboard to my career. Yeah, amazing. Um, and of course, you've now been champion trainer an incredible 13 times. Are you hungry for more? Are you as motivated as ever, would you say? Yeah, just as keen as ever, motivated as ever. You know, as you said, we've had a great start this year again for our 14th championship. I think Martin Pike was champion trainers 15 times. So <gasps> it would be nice to match that or perhaps even go one in front one day. And, you know, we're still as keen as ever. We've got some great horses for the next few years. So, you know, a little bit of luck, that's possible. I'd love to train 4,000 uh, jump winners. Um, I'm not sure the way that's been done before. And that's, so that's, you know, we're over three and a half thousand now, so we're well on way to that. So it would be nice milestones to achieve one day, you know. Fantastic. Um, and finally then, just looking ahead to the season again, we've got the Tingle Creek coming up, which you mentioned, and other big races. You've got plenty to look forward to in the coming weeks, I guess. Massive busy time. Cheltenham, then it's Hascot, then it's the King George. Yeah, and it's nice to be able to have horses that are good enough to run in a lot of these good races. Fantastic, yeah. And the, I mean, the list of races you've won is just staggering. Is there anything left on your bucket list that you're still keen to achieve? Any races you haven't won and would love to? Um, we've been very lucky to have those horses to win the races. I'd love to win another Gold Cup. I don't think it's... I've won four. No one... I think there's a couple. I can't I think I've been Jim, Jim Draper, possibly in Fort Warren, who mm -hmm. have ranked five winners. It'd be nice to match that. So another Gold Cup, I'd love that. Gosh, that would be very impressive indeed. Well, Paul, these are very exciting times. Um, lovely chatting to you and wishing you the best of luck for the rest of the season. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much. My pleasure. So I'm now joined by our full complement of our news team. Uh, we've got Lucy Elder, Eleanor Jones and Becky Murray. Hi, guys. What have you all been up to this week? Eleanor, I'll come to you first. Well, I had a very exciting, went to my first show for months because my big girl's been out of action and went and jumped a lovely clear. But it's probably quite good that Pippa's not on this week because I would have to admit that I turned her out that morning and actually took her to the show a bit muddy. So oh, I how let's dare you. hope Pippa is not listening, although you'll probably also be appalled. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I hope she went well anyway. And Becky, how about you? What have you been up to? I was reporting um, at the Winter Classic at Morris Questrian at the weekend, which was brilliant, some really exciting combinations. So it was nice to be out and about. Lovely. And finally, Lucy, have you been up to anything exciting recently? Yes, I went to re report on the Melton uh, Hunt Club ride at the weekend, which is, um, I know you know Gemma, it is always a thrill to watch that, isn't it? It's uh, Absolutely. Proper cross-country riding and um, first and second went to Will Bishop and Harriet Walker and kind of the, it was a real masterclass actually. Harriet led most of the way round only to be just just pipped at the end by her fiancé Will. Um, but it was, uh, it was a real, real thrill to watch and um, yeah, beautiful day for it as well how about you Gemma oh I've I've not been up to a great deal if I'm being honest now that I'm horseless I I've been hiding from the weather mostly <laughs> watching racing so um yeah much more like it <laughs> <laughs> not missing it when it's wet and wild outside um but anyway Lucy I'll come to you first this week as you've been working on a story about the details of the Paris 2024 Olympics and how they'll work um crucial decisions for the paris olympics were ratified and the timetable confirmed at the fei general assembly on the 13th of november 
Lucy, Ingmar DeVos, who's the president of the FBI, voiced a stark reminder at the Assembly, didn't he? Can you give us an outline on what he said? Yeah, so this was in his opening opening speech, if you like, and kind of he just gave a reminder that we are only as good as our last games, really, as we head quite rapidly towards Paris. Um, and as you said, I cover quite a lot of that in this week's issue. Mm. Uh, but also he was talking about looking beyond that to equestrian sports future uh, within the Olympic and Paralympic Games, looking ahead to decisions already being kind of made around uh, Los Angeles 2028, um, what Paris will mean for uh, Los Angeles 2028 and things. So looking at in the near distance as well as the bigger picture as well. So yeah, some interesting, interesting points came out of that. Paris um, features a bit of a timetable shake-up this time and, and a new approach to testing the venue's readiness, doesn't it? Can you explain a bit more about that? Yeah, so the main thing here really is the way the disciplines fit together. Eventing's happening first, uh, but all the eventing dressage is going to happen on one long day at Paris. Whereas previously, and as eventing fans will know, at other major three days, it's usually split over two days. So that's all being held on one day the eventing will take place over you know sort of three days there then the dressage and show jumping are next but those will alternate every kind of every two days and again normally you have one discipline then the other uh, but those are being kind of fitted in between each other which I'm going to be interested to see how that works out logistically um, I think it will be quite exciting as well because you've got two sports to be following uh, through a kind of longer period of time and again another thing that's changing for this year is at Tokyo we had the individual final in the show jumping first and then the team final and that's now being reverted back to having the team medals decided first and then ending with the individual show jumping final um, and you mentioned as well about testing plans. So those were also shared in a, in a virtual update by some of the Paris 2024 committee. Um, and that's going to be happening in 2023 and 2024. And while the cross country is going to be tested, obviously, on site, uh, some parts of the operations, such as things like the footing and the, yeah, the operational team and things, it's actually going to be tested at Fontainebleau, which is, uh, which is some sort of 70 kilometres away. So, yeah, it's all starting to feel quite real now it's crept up on us hasn't mm. it like these things always do and they were they also revealed details of how the main arena and the the cross-country course at the paris games will look in a virtual update um can you tell us a bit about that absolutely so the paris 2024 equestrian uh, Paralympic and Olympic disciplines are all being held at Versailles. So as soon as yeah. we knew that, we knew it was going to be spectacular. We've known that for a while, but it is still really exciting every time we get some new kind of virtual images or updates and things. And um, so we were given some kind of more details about how the cross country course is going to look. Um, the intended route really makes a lot of use of that spectacular Grand Canal. It's going to feature two pontoon crossings, three water jumps and 25 numbered fences. And the distance is going to be sort of 5,300 metres in an optimum time of nine minutes and 18 seconds. So that's longer than Tokyo, where the course was shortened um, owing to the climate and sort of health well, horse welfare considerations. Uh, but I cannot wait to see 
how it starts to take shape as we start to see more details of it. They, they shared some pictures of things like, <laughs> this is a real niche thing for horse people to get excited about, mown grass strips, you know, things Ooh, like that, yes. sort of where tracks <laughs> might be. Um, but you can kind of visualize how it might start to look with that in, in that incredible setting. I mean, I can't wait for it. And the, the images that will come out of there will be quite spectacular, I'm sure. Becky, I'll come to you next. You've been working on a story this week about rules on blood and riding dangerously, which were approved at the FEI General Assembly in Cape Town. First of all, can you tell us about the new rule that will come into force for eliminations in show jumping? Yes, this is around blood-related eliminations and show jumping. And during the rules review process earlier in the year, the Swedish National Federation put forward a proposal after a combination completed the round at the Tokyo Games last summer, despite bleeding from the nose. The Federation called for horses to be eliminated if they were bleeding from the nostril. Um, however, the FEI Jumping Committee felt this needed to be a bit broader. So the rule that has been approved means the president of the ground jury or designated ground jury member may ring the bell to eliminate a combination during a round if they decide horse welfare was being impacted. And it's also worth noting if a combination is eliminated under this rule, this cannot be appealed. Okay. And there there were sort of other new rules as well, weren't there, around other disciplines. Um, Can you tell us more about the one for eventing that sort of circles around dangerous riding? Yes, under this new rule, course designers will have the right to monitor possible cases of dangerous riding during the cross-country phase. And they would report this to the ground jury who would ultimately take the decision on elimination. This was first discussed at the FEI Sports Forum in April when it was highlighted that course designers obviously have that expertise and the FEI eventing committee chairman David O'Connor said that course designers are very happy to do this as well. It would be yeah interesting to see how that comes into play and finally there's also a new rule that's being introduced in 2023 in dressage when a combination is stopped during a freestyle. What can you tell us about that? Yes, so where they're stopped during a freestyle, say this is owing to extreme weather as one example why they might be stopped, um, they'll now be able to restart either from the beginning of their test or from where they stopped. Obviously, it might be more favourable for some to go back and start again. But it's worth adding that if any in any other test, they must restart from where they've stopped. Okay, and other rules have been approved across the disciplines too, which you can read more about in Becky's report in this week's magazine, which is out today, the 24th of November. Finally, Eleanor, I'll come to you to discuss antibiotic use in horses, which you've been writing about this week. Um, The Royal Veterinary College has released findings from a study that it's carried out to mark World Antimicrobial Awareness Week this week. Can you tell us a bit more about that study and its findings? Yeah, so this obviously this research was released uh, because of of the global wheat, because of course, as we've reported before, that you know antibiotic resistance is a big and an and an increasing issue that affects human and animal health. Um, and this they they say this is the first research of its kind, and it sort of looked at the extent antibiotic biotics are given prescribed to horses um, and it found there was a lack of routine testing that should be carried out especially before these last resort category B antibiotics um, who which need to be protected for the treatment of serious illnesses in human and veterinary medicine. And Sarah Allen of the Royal Veterinary College's Vet Compass program spoke about the findings as well didn't she? What, can you tell us a bit about what her thoughts were? 
Yeah, so she was saying this surveillance of, of keeping an eye on how uh, antibiotics used in horses well, should help the profession, the veterinary profession, show its commitment to responsible prescription. Um, and they hope that by reporting on how commonly they're prescribed to horses and showing where maybe things should be improved, that others will hopefully look at improving how they prescribe what she described and a lot of people have described as vital medicines. Right. And David Rendell, who's president of the British Equine Veterinary Association, spoke to you about the data, didn't he, Eleanor? What were his thoughts? Yeah, he, he was very pleased to see this report and he said it highlights some really important issues that the, the Veterinary Association is working hard on. Um, he said it was disappointed to see how much these Category B drugs are being used and that the testing isn't being used more. Um, and and he's saying there, there's clearly a need for everyone to, to redouble their efforts. So, you know, owners are, are, are urged to support their vets. So, you know, if the vet says they, they don't think antibiotics are used, please support that decision absolutely well thank you all so much for joining me today and filling us in on the news stories you've been working on this week and i hope you have a good rest of the week so dr Gemma pearson is director of equine behavior for the horse trust She's a qualified equine veterinary behaviourist who combines her time between seeing clinical behaviour cases at the University of Edinburgh's Equine Hospital and ongoing research on this topic. So on this episode, we're going to talk about booking and rearing in horses as unwanted behaviours. So the first take-home message is pain. And if it's not pain, it's probably pain. And if it's not pain, it's probably pain. Almost all the horses I see with booking and rearing have pain as a component. You know, I've seen horses that are working at elite level dressage. I've seen horses that are jumping, that are doing endurance riding, that are hacking. And everyone says, well, they're fine, apart from when they're booking and rearing. They're winning at competitions, therefore pain can't be a component, but it often is. So it's really important to, you know, speak with your vets and have a really good look into pain for booking and rearing. And again, I've mentioned, you know, in other episodes, the Sue Dyson's ridden horse pain ethogram is a great way to say, well, actually, are any of these other signs occurring at the same time? So what if it's not pain? I mean, aside from the fact it probably is, but, you know, I do see a very small number of horses where booking and rearing is not due to pain. And then it comes back to deficits in the trained responses. So horses never have an agenda. Horses are never naughty. You get the behaviour you reinforce, not the behaviour you want. So most of the time, these behaviours have been accidentally reinforced. And for both booking and rearing, it tends to come back to deficits in the go forwards response or the stop response. So on the one hand, you may have a horse um, which is going along well. Perhaps you're in a field where you always canter with your friends and the horse starts to book or the horse starts to rear. That is normally because the rider is holding the horse back with the reins. The horse at that point in time wants to go faster than the rider does because they don't want to run into their friend on their horse in front of them, which of course is very understandable. So in this scenario, we need to think about retraining the horse to slow down off of light bit pressure and then to maintain self-carriage. Because the reason the horse may start to rear or may start to buck in that scenario is because the bit pressure that the horse is motivated to go forwards, it wants to gallop with its friends, and the bit pressure then becomes uncomfortable for them. 
So the way that they feel they can resolve the bit pressure, which is stopping them from being able to gallop, is often to do a little rear. And if they do a little rear, obviously we don't want to pull the horses over backwards, so the rider often changes the, the bit pressure, um, which is self-reinforcing. The same if the horse does a little buck. It's going to slightly displace the rider in the saddle, therefore the bit pressure has been released for a fraction of a second, and that has just reinforced that behaviour. So we are retraining these behaviours. Now, the other side of that is horses that don't want to go forwards. So you'll see the rider going round and they'll often be using increasing leg pressure. They may even have spurs on. And then the horse suddenly stops and either rears or books or kicks out. And that is the horse's way of trying to remove the rider's leg pressure. This horse has not been trained to go forwards off of the leg successfully. Therefore, its alternative way of removing this increased leg pressure is to rear or book. So for both of these scenarios, we really need to think about retraining the horse to either slow and stop off of light rein pressure and then release it as soon as the horse does. And then also, you know, if the horse um, is going forward, they need to be able to slow and maintain slow with well, we, we give and retake the reins. And in another episode, we talk about strong horses. So that's a good one to kind of refresh yourselves on um, how we deal with horses that, are, you know, want that don't respond to rein pressure very well. And then, you know, in another episode, we talk about horses that nap and talk about retraining a horse to go forwards off of leg pressure if they don't go forwards off of that. So thinking about bucking and rearing, think about when it occurs. Is it when the horse wants to go faster than the rider does or is it when the horse isn't going forwards from the rider's leg pressure very well? Once you identify that, you can then go in and retrain the basic responses. Now, what's important is that we don't try and punish the horse for rearing or bucking, because if the horse, you know, goes to rear and then the, the rider smacks it with a whip, all that's going to happen is the horse is going to associate, you know, the increased pressure from rein or leg. The horse thinks about rearing. The next thing that happens, the whip is there. So the horse may try rearing higher or they may try napping or launching or bucking, but they're probably going to try a different behavior to prevent being hit with the whip. Because what the horse can't understand is that if they were going forwards in the first place, then the rider wouldn't have had to use the whip. That's a higher cognitive process. That concept is too hard for the horse to understand. So we should never use punishment. We should never just hit the horse once. We need to just identify what the deficit is in either going forwards or slowing and stopping, and then quietly retrain that by breaking it down into easy to achieve steps. When horses rear, they also don't tend to land perfectly straight. They tend to land to one side or the other. And just the same as with napping, most horses that rear tend to land to the left because they like to push off of that right foreleg. So you often need to retrain straightness in these horses as well. Booking, I would think there are two types of book that I see. And which one depends on how we go forwards treating it. So pain, I've always said I'd like to see that straight away. If you put the leg on or the, you know, excessive rein pressure and the horse kicks out at that, that's often because of the pressure. If the horse raises its head up and its bum comes up in the air to buck, again, that can be pain, but it can also be due to increased rein or leg pressure that the horse is trying to remove. And I would call that a U-shaped buck. So the horse's head and its bum are at the kind of highest points of the book and the rider and the saddle is the lowest point. The other side is what I'd call an N-shaped book or like bronching. And this is where the horse may put their head down, 
the bum stays down, they often curl their bum underneath them and the wither in the saddle becomes the highest point of the buck. Now, I honestly, I've never seen a single case that bucks like that that isn't due to pain. And things like kissing spines, um, other forms of spinal pain, neck pain, is probably the most common reasons we would see that type of buck in horses. It can be due to other musculoskeletal pain as well. It can also be due to fractures of the sternum or ribs. Um, but if a horse is bucking like that, one, I think they're the most dangerous ones. They're the ones that people are more likely to get in se severe injuries if they're booked off. But two, if it's an N-shaped buck, not a U-shaped buck, no one should be sitting on that horse until you've had a really thorough veterinary investigation. So I hope that was a little bit of an insight into rearing and booking horses. I hope you enjoyed that and I look forward to seeing you in another episode. Thank you, Gemma. Gemma will be back with us next week to talk about training horses who don't stand still. And our interview will be with Irish international dressage rider, Abby Lyle. And of course, we'll cover all the week's news as normal. Thank you for joining us on today's Horse and Hound podcast and we look forward to seeing you next week. The Horse and Ham podcast is a Media Cage production.